The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everybody and welcome to another episode of One Hour at a Time. And I'm Jonathan Luthier, your guest host today. And I'm very, very pleased to have our guest, uh, Dr. Kevin Hill, with us, and our topic today is marijuana. Um, It's a topic that I know uh, has certainly generated a lot of controversy in recent times, or maybe even for longer than recent times. There have been a lot of changes in laws across the country in different states, and um, that has certainly sparked a lot of interest in this topic. So our our discussion today may take us uh, everywhere from looking at marijuana uh, from its history and the debate over whether it should be legal or not to how do you help people with, um, who are experiencing problems as a result of their marijuana use. But our guest today is Dr. Kevin Hill, and Kevin is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard's McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts, and he's an addiction consultant with a number of professional sports organizations. His marijuana research is funded by the National Institute of Health, the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation, and the American Lung Association. And in 2013, I'm sorry, 2013, Dr. Hill was awarded the Alfred Pope Award for the Best Research Paper by a Young Investigator at McLean Hospital. And he's authored or co-authored articles in more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific publications. So good afternoon, Dr. Hill, and uh, again, thank you for joining us today, and um, and for uh, sharing information about this incredibly rich topic. Well, thanks for having me on, Jonathan. Great. And uh, for folks, uh, for our listeners out there um, to, uh, to be aware of, uh, Dr. Hill is an author of a book called Marijuana, the Unbiased Truth about the World's Most Popular Weed. And uh, so, Dr. Hill, what was it that inspired you to, to write a book about marijuana? Well, really, I think there was two things that really uh, prompted me to work on a book on marijuana. I think the first one was from a clinical perspective. I think it's so hard for people to, number one, recognize that marijuana for some people can be an addictive process. You know, people can use marijuana on a daily basis and have problems in work, school, and relationships. And so I think I needed to educate people to understand, number one, that there were people out there that had this type of problem, then number two, what to look for if someone in your family might have a problem like this, and then really the third piece is, is what to do about it. So I think really from a treatment perspective, uh, I think my primary motivation was to try to educate people about marijuana addiction, but also at the same time that I was thinking about those issues, I was educating more and more people uh, while Massachusetts was considering the medical marijuana ballot initiative uh, around 2011. And I think at that point, it really became crystal clear to me that there was a tremendous gap between the science of marijuana and what the public perception was. And I've continued to 
see that as I've uh, given more and more talks over the years. But at that point, it really became clear to me that there needed to be uh, some straight talk about marijuana. What was the truth about the science of it in order to try to bridge that gap? So I think really the motivations for the book were both clinical uh, and, and policy-related. And, and since that time, you know, I've been doing a lot of work in both of those areas. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so tell us a little bit more about the work that you are doing in that area. Sure. So, so I really do uh, work in three areas at McLean. I think the, the, the first area is purely clinical. So I see patients every single day. Uh, I run what's called the Addiction Consultation Service at McLean Hospital, which is a resident-run, so junior physician-run service. So essentially I train younger docs on how to deal with addictions, and we go. McLean is a specialty psychiatric hospital that has units for really every kind of psychiatric problem you could imagine. And so we go from unit to unit throughout the hospital seeing patients that have addiction problems, and I teach residents how to treat people with those problems. So that's really from a clinical perspective what I do. I also have a private practice where I see these days a lot of folks, particularly young folks, who have um, problems with marijuana. And uh, the second piece is my research. So you'd mentioned uh, I'm funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and I run three clinical trials that are aimed at developing medications for people that have addiction problems. Two are aimed at developing medications for that group of people, a subset of people who are addicted to marijuana. So we're working on medications that can alleviate some of the withdrawal symptoms that you have, and we could talk about what that looks like. And then my, my third study is a smoking cessation trial for people that are, are smoking cigarettes and want to quit. So those clinical trials take up the bulk of my time, but that's really the second area. And the third area is really education. So as I mentioned, I've been doing a lot of speaking over the last probably four years or so, trying to bridge the gap between uh, what the science is of marijuana, but also alcohol and opioids and, and what the public perception is. And so I speak to a lot of students. I'm an official community partner to the Boston Public Schools, but I talk in schools all over the Northeast, uh, mostly about marijuana issues. And then I uh, also give a lot of talks to other substance abuse professionals or healthcare professionals, internists, general practitioners, about how to deal with marijuana issues, whether it be medical marijuana or marijuana addiction. And then as you also mentioned, um, you know, I consult to certain um, policymakers and organizations that are very interested in marijuana, as you mentioned, everyone really is these days, so it keeps me busy. So those are really the three key areas, clinical, research, and then education. Right. Well, I'm, I don't know where you find time to sleep in the, in the middle of all that. It sounds like you are <laughs> certainly... Uh, you're covering a lot of ground, and I think, uh, so first I just want to con- uh, congratulate you and thank you for, you know, such an important contribution. I think marijuana is one of those areas uh, in addiction treatment in particular where, um, and in, in addition to that, you know, in mental health treatment where there's just been a lot of, there have been a lot of question marks, maybe more question marks than answers, and uh, it seems to be that, um, you know, even within the treatment industry, there's there seem to be... Uh, there's, there's lack of consensus about, you know, how to approach treatment of marijuana addiction, how to approach marijuana abuse, how to approach, you know, how to advocate for the needs of people who are using marijuana and also, uh, you know, what information to convey. You know, what's, what's the right information to convey to help prevent marijuana addiction? I wholeheartedly agree. I think part of that 
is uh, the, the idea that there's a lot of misinformation about marijuana because there's so much at stake from a policy perspective. There's so many people that are very passionate about the issue. Really, there's a battle going on over marijuana in the country right now. So you have people who are very much for marijuana and they want to have medical marijuana and legalize recreational marijuana. And a lot of times they tend to portray the message that uh, marijuana is harmless and it's not harmless. Um, and then on the other side, again, equally passionate and people that, that I respect as well, but who are very much opposed to marijuana. And I think that sometimes they tend to dramatize a bit the, the effects of marijuana to the degree that people will often come away after going to their talks, for example, and, and feel that if you use marijuana at all, you're doomed. And that's not the case either. And I think it's critical when you think about marijuana to understand that the answers with marijuana are really in the middle. Most people who use marijuana don't have any problems, just like alcohol, but we recognize with alcohol that there's a subset of people, just as there is with marijuana, who use every single day, often multiple times a day, to the detriment of work, school, and relationships. So I think that's one piece. There's this political battle going on, and those are the messengers a lot of times. And so because they have agendas... They're often presenting information that is not accurate or it's not complete. And then from a treatment perspective, I, again, I, I entirely agree with you, but the fact of the matter is there, uh, there isn't the evidence that we need. So when you think about how to treat marijuana addiction, as you mentioned correctly, there really isn't a consensus. You can use behavioral techniques, talk therapies, and the data really shows there that there's no one type of therapy that works better than any other. It's more about the intensity and duration. And then okay. kind of getting back to, to my research a bit, there are no FDA-approved medications that you can use to treat marijuana addiction. And so that's part of the reason why it's so important to try to identify them. But clearly, there are many, many messages out there uh, that people hear about marijuana, and most of them just aren't right. And so I think that's part of the reason why it's so important to have shows like this where we really can sort through a lot of the issues with marijuana. There are many things that have to do with marijuana that are not intuitive, and it's complex. And I would, would say to, to the listeners out there, if ever somebody is trying to really tell you that things are very simple with marijuana, it's all good, it's all bad, you need to be careful because chances are um, they're, not, they're not being accurate. Right. Well, and I think the, um, you know, our tendency is to try to just d draw a line somewhere, right? It's either it's gonna, it's it's either mostly good, mostly bad, you know, all good, all bad. But I think the you know the public need to um, to make decisions or the public drive to try to make a decision about something, you know, forces forces people to kind of say, okay, well, which side of the line is this on? You know, which side? Uh, where are we going to characterize this? And uh, and. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right that it's not a, it's not simple. It's not as simple as that. You can't sort of just say, okay, well, it's, it's left or it's right or it's right or it's wrong. Yeah, and it's are, okay to be uh, yeah. on different sides of the issue relative to marijuana on different questions, right? I mean, you don't have to be for marijuana in every single instance. I mean, you can uh, believe in medical marijuana and not legalize marijuana or vice versa. Uh, it's just the, the, the point that I try to make is whatever your stance is on these important policy issues, understand why it is that you believe that. 
you know, don't have some sort of dogma about it or an ideological belief that really is not supported by evidence. And, and again, one of the points that I make, there are many instances with marijuana where I've changed my views over time based upon what the research has, has shown. Some of the research that I've done and some research that others have done, there are many things about marijuana that we think will be true that haven't been true so far. And there are also, you have to keep in mind that there are issues relative to some of these policy issues that may not turn out to be the way that we think they will. And you have to be able to change your view depending on the data. That's what I think is critical. And I think, unfortunately, at this point, there are many people who are really invested in, in the marijuana issues who are not willing to look at evidence and change their mind. They are very much dug in on these issues. And that's where things become, I think, dangerous in the sense that they're not willing to compromise and you end up with policy that doesn't work. And that's really what we've seen, frankly, in the 23 states in the district that have medical marijuana and also the four states in the District of Columbia that have legalized recreational marijuana. The policies that we have in place are not as strong as they could be in part due to the fact that we haven't really been willing to compromise on these issues. We essentially have you know, people who are strongly for marijuana and strongly against rolling the dice on these issues. Sometimes one side wins, sometimes the other does, but we end up with policies that just don't work. Right. Well, and I think, you know, probably similar to the, you know, um, the efforts to uh, enact prohibition legislation uh, and then to repeal it, um, the debate is fueled by deep emotion and personal experience, Right. I agree, and, and I'm, I, you know, I am one who believes in emotion and personal experience. I think you should use that as fuel uh, when you can, but you also need to be able to be objective about it to some degree. Again, the, the idea to be able to look at evidence and say, wait a minute, this isn't exactly how I thought it would turn out, and be willing to alter your position is important. You have to do that, and that's something that I have to do as a clinician, as a researcher, and I really think that if you're going to be sophisticated about these issues, then the public needs to be willing to do that as well. Because again, there are many points, some of which we can talk about today, that people would think that the answer would be one thing, and it actually has turned out to be something else. And again, I think that those kinds of uh, instances are the ones that you need to look at when thinking about policy. You have to be willing to look at evidence you know, and it's important right. to collect that evidence, but you also need to be able to use that evidence to shape policy moving forward if things right. don't exactly. turn out the way that you think they would. Exactly. So um, we're just about to go to our first commercial break, and um, we'll be back in a few minutes to continue the discussion about marijuana, the unbiased truth about the world's most popular weed. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence based practices, consensus practices, and old fashioned 
common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Biohacking for Health is working with your individual biology to gain access to and control over the systems within your body. It allows you to explore your biology and improve health and wellness. Each of us has unique genetic profiles and physiology that require individualized approaches. On Biohacking for Optimal Health, Dr. Daniel Stickler and his expert guests provide a roadmap to navigate the world of biohacking human potential. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time, everybody. This is Jonathan Ruth here. I'm your guest host on a rainy Monday day here in uh, in New England. And we're finally getting some much-needed reprieve from all the dryness. I uh, hope that the weather is cooperating where you are out there in the world. And today we're talking about marijuana. And our guest today is Dr. Kevin Hill. Uh, Dr. Kevin Hill is a researcher, assistant professor of psychiatry at uh, Harvard's McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts, and a passionate educator on the subject of marijuana. So just before the break, we were talking about the importance of uh, providing solid evidence for decision-making and, and for helping the uh, public in their decision-making uh, really do so from, a, from an informed perspective. And so, Dr. Hill, I was wondering if you might want to tell us a little bit more about um, what kind of research is ongoing right now and, and what is the developing evidence that can help people in their... Uh, decision-making process. Sure, sure. So I think when uh, when we talk about marijuana, it's critical to really understand what the risks are. And so, uh, again, there are people talking about comparing marijuana to alcohol. And I think when you look at that comparison, it's a very valid comparison. I like it in large part because there are similar substances in a variety of ways. Most people who use alcohol or marijuana don't have problems, but there are a subset of people who use both of these substances and do develop very significant problems, could be with work, school, or relationships. I think the key difference between the two is that as a society in the United States, we recognize the fact that alcohol is dangerous. And we haven't progressed that far in terms of thinking about marijuana and its potential risks. And so when I think about the risks for marijuana, they're pretty well defined. And you really can run into trouble in in one of two ways. The first one is acutely or using marijuana today. If you use marijuana today, chances are, again, that you probably won't have a problem, but you could have problems really with judgment, for example. You can make decisions that you might not otherwise make. You could have your ability to drive become impaired. So those are the ways that on a a one-time use basis, marijuana use uh, can be dangerous. It doesn't mean for most people that it will be, but it, that has the potential, and we need to understand that. However, the research is quite clear that if you are somebody who uses marijuana regularly, so daily or nearly every day, usually for a period of it, 
of time, so an extended period, that's where you have most of your problems with marijuana, so chronic use. And when we think about that, we think about multiple areas. Number one, uh, cognitive difficulties associated with regular marijuana use. So there have been some prominent researchers, Stacy Gruber, uh, Harrison Pope uh, at McLean Hospital, who have done imaging work that shows more or less that young people who use marijuana regularly essentially recruit different parts of their brain in order to get the same amount of work done. done excuse me. And that's not a good long-term strategy for success. Toward that end, there was an important study that came out in 2012 by Madeline Meyer from Duke University in which, um, in her study, they followed 1,000 New Zealanders over their lifetime, and they did neuropsychological testing at ages 13 and 38. And what they showed was that those people who use marijuana at a young age and continued to use it over time, uh, they lost up to eight points of IQ during that time in the study. And unfortunately, once they lose that, they can't get it back. So it's pretty clear that regular marijuana use among young people is especially problematic. And even people who are strongly for marijuana tend not to argue that point. The second piece... And, and how, uh, how is it ahead. that... Um, just, to, just to insert a question quickly, the, um, you know, everybody... Uh, you know, who is interested in kind of looking at, well, what's, what's that cutoff point, you know? I mean, how, how do people define regular use? And is it important to define regular use? Uh, yeah, so actually, you, know, you bring up two more points, strictly. probably. So when you think about the, the cutoff points, really you can think about two things. Number one, how to define regular use, and also the age. Who, who, you know, what ages should we be concerned about? And so to address those two issues... Marijuana actually is a little bit different from alcohol in the sense when you think about the distribution or how people use it. Uh, with alcohol, pretty much people can use sporadically or two times a week or four times a week or every day. Marijuana tends not to distribute that way in the sense that people either like marijuana or they don't. So people don't use it at all or they will use it once every few months if it may be at a party or they tend to say, well, you know what, I like this. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel less anxious, whatever it may be. And then they will continue to use a lot. So there are more people at one end or the other with marijuana than for alcohol. And so when I talk about regular use from a research perspective, we talk about four or more times per week or four more days per week. But when we talk about the people who are actually in my studies, most of them are using six, seven days a week the people that are using regularly. So that's the one piece. So regular use is daily or nearly every day uh, marijuana use, often multiple times a day. And then to talk about who's uh, at more risk, we talk about people whose brains are still developing. And so uh, your brain is developing into the early 20s, 21 years old or so. So clearly there's a much higher risk for people who are using marijuana from 21 and below than uh, 21 and above, which is why I think really when I think about legalized recreational marijuana, for example, I tend to think, you know, as you're, if you're an adult, if you're 21 and above, you can make decisions to do things sometimes that are harmful for you if, if you want to. So really, you know, those two kind of cutoff points, you know, 21 and below, and then also when you talk about use, it's, it's really four times a week or more, but it, it's usually every day. Okay. So to, to get back to other uh, risks with marijuana use, again, 
um, you know, thinking about psychiatric problems that are often exacerbated um, by or made worse by marijuana use. I think the second key piece is anxiety. So anxiety is really one of the top three reasons that people will often say that they use marijuana. And again, as we said at the top of the show, many things that have to do with marijuana are not intuitive. This is one of those things. If you're feeling anxious and you use marijuana, you're going to feel less anxious. However, the problem comes into play when the marijuana wears off. When marijuana wears off, your level of anxiety will seesaw back up. So over time, your baseline level of anxiety actually gets worse. It becomes higher. So um, using the marijuana plant is not a good idea as as a method to treat anxiety. We may ultimately see parts of the marijuana plant or cannabinoids. The marijuana plant's made up of uh, 60 or more cannabinoids, and we may see some of those cannabinoids ultimately be effective as treatments for certain anxiety disorders. But in general, smoking marijuana is not good uh, for people who are anxious. The third thing is depression. Um, Using marijuana regularly can worsen mood. It can make you less energetic, less likely to do the things that you're supposed to do. And that, of course, can uh, lead to worsening depression, obviously. And then the last piece, which is key, is this idea that if you're using marijuana as a young person, you can trigger certain psychotic disorders. So if you already have a family history of schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder or bipolar disorder with psychotic features, you're more likely to express that if you're using marijuana at a young age. So to be clear, marijuana is not causing those problems, but it's triggering them if you already have that potential inside you uh, from a genetic point of view. And the way that we see that play out at McLean is we have a couple of units here for people with psychotic disorders. And generally once or twice a month, we'll be asked to see a patient who maybe 16 years old, never saw a psychiatrist before, started using marijuana a few months ago, and then all of a sudden developed um, psychotic symptoms like hallucinations. So, you know, as I like to say, most of us are not crystal clear on what our family history is in terms of psychiatric illness. And so, therefore, if you're a young person, you know, you're at risk for having uh, other psychotic disorders become, you know, evident if you're using marijuana, all the more reason to uh, really be clear about the, the dangers of marijuana for young people in particular. Right. Well, you know, um, here at Westbridge, you know, we, we specialize in working with folks who have serious mental illness and substance use disorders, and that, that dynamic has presented itself time and time again where, you know, somebody who's a late teenager um, you know, who started using marijuana or maybe started using marijuana in middle school or, you know, uh, early in high school um, and who later developed schizophrenia, um, and, you know, there, and again, you can't say that one caused the other, but, but there seems to be a really high correlation between the two of those events. Yeah, no, I agree. And again, you know, I wanted to be clear about that. Exactly what you said, that the marijuana use is not causing these terrible illnesses. It doesn't cause schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. But the reality is what the research shows that if you have the genes for that, again, if you have the, you know, if two brothers have the genes for schizophrenia, both of them may not necessarily develop the problem uh, or develop the disorder but there are certain things that can make it more likely for them to develop the disorder. And using marijuana regularly as a young person is one of those things. So, again, you're opening the door to some problems that you might not otherwise have 
Uh, and then that's the example there. But it, but it is important to point out that it's not a causal relationship. Right. Now, um, you talked a little bit about sort of the, the withdrawal side, and I think that's, uh, and certainly in the book, um, you, you identify this as a myth, right, that stopping use of marijuana doesn't cause withdrawal. And that, that uh, you know, it's something you don't hear about, right? You don't, you don't hear about marijuana withdrawal a lot. You hear about withdrawal from alcohol. You hear about withdrawal from cocaine and, and from opiates uh, pretty regularly, both in the public media and the treatment world. So, um, but, but there is a withdrawal phenomenon with marijuana, correct? There is, there is. And I, to me, this is a great area where you can help somebody stop using marijuana. So, again, if somebody comes into me, they say, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm tired of using marijuana. I don't think I'm achieving what I should be achieving. I think I might have a problem. I want to stop. You know, if you talk to that person, generally they will tell you that they've tried to stop on their own, usually multiple times by the time they come in to see me. And that's where withdrawal comes in because it's usually the same type of scenario. They'll say, look, I made a decision I was going to stop on a Friday. I got up in the morning. Instead of smoking first thing in the morning like I would normally before work, uh, I didn't. You know, they went into work. They kind of white-knuckled it throughout the day. They didn't feel good. They felt physically, um, you know, nauseous perhaps or anxious or irritable. They made it through the entire day. But generally what happens is people will say, look, by the end of the day, I was feeling so lousy, I felt like the only way that I was going to be able to get to sleep that night was if I were to smoke. And so those withdrawal symptoms get in the way. Just as somebody who smoking a pack of cigarettes a day has a tough time stopping cold turkey, you can have these same sort of withdrawal symptoms with marijuana. In fact, there were a series of studies uh, done by um, Alan Budney, who's at Dartmouth now, and also Ryan Vandry, who's at Hopkins now, where they very nicely showed that the symptoms that you have with marijuana withdrawal are very similar to those of nicotine withdrawal to the extent where uh, the cannabis withdrawal syndrome is in the DSM-5, the Psychiatric Diagnostic Manual now. So, so right. the way that I look at this is if somebody first comes into me and they're looking to reduce their marijuana use or stop, talking about withdrawal gives them a, a, a leg up because now they're, they're understanding this idea that, hey, I'm going to have physical symptoms and I need to look for them. And so that right. gives them a better uh, chance to be able to stop. That's also the reason why we're doing the studies that we're doing. To hear that you've got, you know, that they have to watch out for these kinds of things, you know, when it comes to marijuana. And I think it's a, it's a really great point of education. When we come back after the break, we're going to um, maybe talk a little bit more about sort of the physical signs and symptoms related to marijuana use and addiction. And uh, we'll be back in a few minutes with Dr. Kevin Hill. Thank you. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. 
Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. And welcome back, everybody. This is Jonathan Luthier, your guest host today for one hour at a time. I'm with Dr. Kevin Hill, and we're talking about marijuana. Um, and uh, Dr. Dr. Hill's book is Marijuana: The Unbiased Truth About the World's Most Popular Neat. Uh, excuse me, the world's most popular weed. Um, and uh, just uh, you know, before we resume discussion, I just want to make sure our listeners know how to get a copy of the book if they're interested in purchasing it. Yeah, sure. So uh, it's available wherever books are sold, Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. I also have a, a website, drkevinhill.com, where people can go and get the book. So it's not hard to find. Terrific. All right. So, you know, so before the break, we were talking a little bit about the, the physical side of, <clears throat> of marijuana and what it does to the body. Um, and, and, you know, the question of sort of, you know, if you've seen one marijuana plant, you've seen one marijuana plant, right? I mean, the, 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 uh, the concentration... Uh, may vary from plant to plant, but the, the effects on the body are pretty much the same. And, and I think for parents out there, um, it's kind of a frightening world. You know, we, um, the, the, the pot that we all learned about, you know, as, as young people is not the same pot as today. And you made that point uh, several times throughout the book. So, um, you know, what, what should parents know these days about marijuana? Well, I think, again, what you're saying is 100% true. I think many people are misguided by their own experiences in the sense that if you may have had experience with marijuana in the 60s, 70s, or 80s, you know, the average uh, active ingredient, so delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, that makes you high, average THC content back then, 1% to 2%. Nowadays, the average, the, the most recently published average THC content was about 13%. But you can get the plant uh, in the, the 20s in terms of THC content, and even the low 30s. So um, it's really apples and oranges. And so really how that plays out, really one of two ways. I think the first one is people will say, look, we smoked marijuana when we were younger, and we turned out okay. Unfortunately, it's unclear how that more potent marijuana is going to change that relationship, right? So if a... Right. 15-year-old kid in 2015 uses a marijuana that's 15% THC, let's say, just to keep it simple, are they more likely to develop problems as opposed to a 15-year-old kid in 1975 using 1% to 2% THC marijuana? I think that's, that's one question. We don't have the answer to that yet. So that's critical. And then the other way that it plays out, parents will say to me, look, we knew that our son was using marijuana in his room at night, but we said, well, at least he's not using 
uh, oxycodone or heroin. And I get that, right? So we know that, particularly with the opioid epidemic, opioids are more dangerous than marijuana. However, marijuana can still be dangerous. And so I think that the message has to be clear for parents that any drug use among young people, you need to bring the cavalry, you need to bring all, all available resources because you never really know who's going to be the young person who's going to go on and develop more significant problems. And again, it's also hard to know the extent to which uh, the problems have already taken hold. So uh, I counsel people to really be very careful about these issues, to be on the lookout for situations where marijuana use may be uh, prevalent, and then to try to address it uh, as soon as possible uh, when it does become apparent. Well, certainly, you know, as a father of two young boys myself, one who's you know going to be entering high school, I worry that you know um, friends are going to be using, and um, you know that uh, you know the same dynamic may play out, right? That that if people don't have the information, they won't understand that. First of all, it's a different marijuana than it was you know, uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And, um, you know, that, there, that you can never really be guaranteed of its safety. Oh, no, absolutely. I think that's a great point. Really what you're doing is you're preparing, you know, your kids. I think just by having the conversations about it, say, look, you know, drug use is everywhere. This is what I think about it. You know, we need, this is important. We need to talk about it. That goes a long way. One of the things that, I, that I've seen over and over again is that with young people, they very much value what parents do or what parents feel, and they keep that in mind. That doesn't mean that you're necessarily, you know, that your your child is not going to try marijuana, let's say, but they might not, or they may try it, but then, again, you know, having this notion that they know that you don't use marijuana, you don't approve of it, that makes a huge difference. Like it or not, you're incredibly strong role models, and so I think that's, one thing, but then the other thing is, you know, having this open line of communication, talking about things uh, that are very important like that. I think that really sets the, the standard. And it's also important that if something were to become a problem down the road, then it sets a precedent and, and your child feels like they can come and talk to you. So that's one of the things when we talk about it in the book about how to identify problems and then what to do about it. Really, the preparation is really the first step. And one of the key to preparation is just to have the type of relationship where they know that you're interested in these sort of things so that if something goes down, they feel like they can come to you with it. Right. Now, I think for, you know, for folks out there who have been uh, maybe depending on the fact that marijuana was considered illegal for as long as it has been, uh, with the changing landscape out there, you know, um, that seems to be an ever more important discussion to be having with folks, right? Uh, you know, the, the fear factor in terms of, well, you could get caught and get arrested. Um, yeah, no, no, it, it definitely is. It's a, it's a changing landscape. I think more than anything, I think, is the concern that um, talk about things like medical marijuana and legalized recreational marijuana may contribute to a declining perception of risk, for example. Um, I think parents are worried about kids... Uh, getting caught or perhaps arrested using marijuana. Kids don't worry about that quite as much or perhaps not as much as they should. But I do think that with all of the various messages out there that are relative to some of these policy issues, I think, again, being educated about it and having frank conversations about it are all the more important um, from a parental perspective. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so it sounds like that, you know, an open dialogue is really uh, is really encouraged so that kids know uh, where their parents stand on it and uh, what the risks are. Yeah, no, no question about it. I think the other end of the preparation, so really there's really four pieces. If somebody were to have a problem, I think there's really four pieces to the puzzle. The first one's preparation. Second one is what the conversation looks like. So preparation, conversation. The third one is evaluation. What does it look like if you come in and see somebody like me or if you go somewhere like Westbridge? And then the fourth one is referral. What does treatment look like? So from a pr- preparation perspective, open line of communication, as you mentioned, also just having a notion about if something were to happen, what would I do? Who would I call? Would I call my primary care doctor? Would I call a treatment facility? That sort of thing. Because when a problem arises, the window of opportunity may not be open very long. So you have to have an idea about what you would do if your uh, teenager, for example, had a problem with marijuana. The conversation is relatively simple. I think what I tell parents is, you know, I just want you to say, look, I'm concerned about your use. I think you need an evaluation. That way, you're not passing judgment. You can let the treatment professional figure out if treatment is necessary, that sort of thing. Somebody like me can be the bad guy if that's necessary. It doesn't always or it doesn't usually end up being that way. But again, we're, you're just saying, look, I'm not so sure about this. I think we need to do more. And so that, therefore, you have that conversation. The evaluation is a thorough evaluation because, again, if someone's having a problem with marijuana or other drugs, it probably is not occurring in a vacuum. So there usually are other issues. could be a psychosocial issue, something going on at school or in a relationship. But there could also be other psychiatric uh, issues that need to be treated, like depression, like anxiety, ADHD, for example. So that's um, the evaluation. And then the referral, you know, if treatment is necessary, what does that look like? As we talked about at the top of the show, really aren't consensus treatments available for marijuana addiction. More often than not, if somebody is using uh, in a problematic way, you're going to recommend that they see a therapist to talk about their issues uh, maybe they would go into a program if things were really bad. But these are things that I think it's important to, to have a resource like you know, my book uh, to understand because I would never expect anybody to know how to navigate these types of problems if you've never done it before. I think it's unreasonable to expect that. As I like to say, you don't have to have all the answers. You just have to know where to get them. Yeah. Well, I thought we all just went back and referenced the parent manual that we got when we all, you know, when we became parents, right? <laughs> I don't think I got that human, term, raise a human being, and yeah. <laughs> so, well, I think it, it, it's really helpful having um, having a framework for the discussion that you know that really helps to promote awareness and education and uh, an openness of dialogue as opposed to shame and fear. That you know, although you know, fear is good, can be very useful in these kinds of discussions, it's not about fear of, you know, punishment from the parent, but it's fear about what are the consequences to me, you know, as a living human being, uh, if I continue to go down this path. Yeah, I agree. How these messages are relayed are critical, and I think, you know, when I think about my work with schools, it's kind of a great example. So you mentioned fear. Fear is something that people need to develop on their own. They need to understand that something's important, that things are potentially lost, you know, things that they want may be lost if they were to engage in certain activities. What I've seen over and over again, sometimes I'll go into a school and they may have had somebody else come in before and talk about 
uh, drugs or alcohol, for example, and kind of what you're talking about, if you uh, engage in sort of fear-mongering, a la the reefer madness of the 1930s, or these days people talking about, you know, as we talked about earlier, the risk of psychosis, how you deliver those messages is critical. And I think that if you attack them uh, from a fear-based perspective, sometimes kids will tune you out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they'll, you know, it's just another horror story that, you know, dad's making up to, uh, you know, to get me to stop having fun. So, um, you know, this, I think this was a great, uh, great and helpful segment for, uh, for parents and others to how to talk to young people about marijuana and its risks. And when we come back after the break, uh, we'll talk a little bit more maybe about, the, about what is happening in the treatment world for marijuana, what evidence-based uh, practices may be evolving, and, and particularly uh, maybe some of the research that you're doing around medications that may be helpful for people. Great. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. And welcome back, everybody, to One Hour at a Time. This is Jonathan Ruthier, your guest host. And we're here with Dr. Kevin Hill talking about marijuana. Just before the break, we were talking a little bit about the, the conversation that, uh, that we can have with young people about uh, exploring the risks. And, uh, you know, at this point, you know, we're, we're thinking about how do we help folks who have been identified as, uh, you know, having marijuana be a problem in their life, whether they've identified that for themselves or someone else has identified that with them and, um, you know, but maybe they're unsure about what, what are the next steps to take and what actually works. So, um, so Dr. Hill, um, what are, what's happening these days in the field of marijuana treatment and, uh, you know, what seems to be showing up as, as, uh, as promising? So, so really, you know, when you think about marijuana treatment, you really think about two, two areas. The first one is behavioral interventions, so talk therapies, 
And really with that, I think as I mentioned uh, near the top of the show, is that the data is pretty clear. There's no consensus type of behavioral intervention that's better than another, but a variety of things can work. It's more about the intensity in which you do the treatment and the duration of treatment. So we've done several studies at McLean uh, in, in my group where we've used cognitive behavioral therapy. So people may be familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. I think it's very good for marijuana addiction. Generally what happens is, you know, I'll sit down with somebody and we'll think about the various scenarios in which they use marijuana. So people will typically use marijuana in a handful of different ways. Could be first thing in the morning, could be as a reward after work, et cetera. And each one of those scenarios requires a different sort of cognitive process to try to unravel, to challenge the thinking behind those processes. And so CBT, from my perspective, is a pretty tedious kind of therapy, but it works pretty well um, for a variety of addictions, including marijuana addictions. From a medication perspective, uh, there, again, there are no FDA-approved medications for people who have marijuana addiction. That's really what, what I spend a lot of my time working on. I mentioned we have two clinical trials where we're using two cannabinoids. Uh, there are two FDA-approved cannabinoids, and we use them both. One of them is called dronabinol or Marinol, which is more or less pure THC. And then the second one is a medication called Nabilone, which is a cannabinoid agonist, which means that it provides some of the effects that marijuana might, uh, although not to the same degree. And so in those studies, we uh, have people who want to reduce or stop using marijuana. We put them on these medications with the idea that those medications will alleviate some of the withdrawal symptoms that they have, and then we taper them off the medicines uh, over a period of weeks. I think those medicines are promising, especially Nabilone, and we have a large Nabilone study that is just getting started. Um, here at McLean, and we've, after we've done a small pilot study that was pretty promising. So, so I'm optimistic about those. However, you know, I do want to be clear that in my private practice, you know, I don't use those medicines because I think it's important to use medicines that have a lot of evidence behind them. And at this point, you know, it's somewhat preliminary. Uh, but there are a couple of medications that have been looked at elsewhere in the country that have uh, good data behind them, uh, preliminary data, but good data nonetheless, and really two medicines. The first one is called N-acetylcysteine, and that was studied by um, a colleague of mine, Kevin Gray, who's at South Carolina. They did a nice study that came out in the American Journal of Psychiatry in 2012 where uh, people who took N-acetylcysteine in addition to some other behavioral treatments did very well in terms of reducing their marijuana use. And then the other medication is a medicine that people may be familiar with called gabapentin or Neurontin. Uh, Barbara Mason from Scripps Institute on the West Coast did a nice study, came out a couple of years ago, where people who were using um, gabapentin to try to reduce uh, marijuana use did very well. So those studies are a bit ahead of my studies in terms of data. One of the other advantages to those two medications that potentially could be advantages over the cannabinoids is that they have fewer side effects. Um, so generally, if a patient is in my practice and they are doing therapy, you know, talking about their problems, whether it be cognitive behavioral therapy or another method for therapy, and it makes sense for them to add a medication, you know, we can do that and there's not a lot of risk. It's off-label, um, but it still can be done. So that's kind of where we're going. There are many people who are trying to develop medications that may be helpful. I think that we will make progress in this area over time, but we need 
more research, more funding, and that sort of thing. So, you know, these are the trials that I have uh, ongoing, and uh, they're funded by uh, the National Institute on Drug Abuse and also some other foundations. But, you know, the more funding that we can get, the, the sooner we can get these trials done. It sounds like there's a couple of different approaches being tried. And one is to help alleviate the withdrawal syndrome and, and sort of slowly take away the um, the substance from the brain so that you know, the withdrawal is not as uncomfortable and therefore the person might be less likely to go back and use. And then the other part of the strategy with NAC or Neurontin is geared, it sounds like, a little bit more towards um, towards what, just sort of a, a similar type of thing in, in terms of uh, withdrawal syndromes or uh, reducing urges and cravings to use? Yeah, well, I uh, think every, you know, all these medications are uh, hopefully going to curb some of the cravings you have. I think uh, it's not clear the mechanisms behind N-acetylcysteine or um, gabapentin in terms of marijuana. Uh, N-acetylcysteine operates through um, the, the uh, I think, the NMDA receptor uh, so you know, it's hard to know, but what is clear is that when you use these medications in concert with behavioral interventions, people can reduce their marijuana use, and so they're promising so far, and that's why there are larger multi-center trials going on uh, with those two medications. So I think it's worth a try um, you know, if you talk with your doctor about um, you know, adding something to your treatment regimen. I think it could make sense. Right, right. Well, um, it's, uh, you know, I think for, for many years we've had uh, medicines available to help people who are withdrawing from opiates and certainly from alcohol, and it sounds like there's some, some promising things on the horizon uh, to, to help folks address the real syndrome of, you know, of uh, withdrawal from marijuana. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the key is for people to understand that while most people use marijuana, don't have problems, there is a subset of people, it's about 9% of adults who use marijuana, who develop addiction. And those people need to have treatments that work. And so that's what we're working on. I think we're making progress. We always want to make progress more quickly, but I think there's reason to be optimistic. Right. And that 9% of people, I, I think this was a great, uh, you know, a great uh, chapter title line for your book, you know, it's, it's a small fraction of a really large number is, you know, it's, it's still a really large number. <laughs> no, I agree. I think, uh, as I like to say, I don't like to deal with large numbers. With marijuana, you do. 20 million Americans used marijuana last year. Uh, even if only 9% of them develop addiction, you know, we're talking millions of Americans. So that's, that's a key point. And I think that also makes it complicated for people if you have overwhelming majority of people not having difficulties with marijuana use, it's hard for those people to understand that there are other people who use multiple times a day and need to use before they go to work. So, so it, it, it makes it hard for people to, to really get a, a handle on marijuana use. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, it is a, it's a complex issue. As you mentioned, it's a, it's a controversial one in terms of, you know, what the public policy should be about uh, whether it's, you know, legalized, decriminalized, um, you know, or completely banned. Um, There's just a lot of ground to cover with it. And, um, you know, it's really, I think it's really terrific, for instance, you know, I mean, uh, in particular that um, you've addressed the the topic in such a balanced way in your book. Um, You've really presented both sides of, the um, you know of the debate I think very very nicely and help people to see uh, you know that marijuana um, 
you know, again, while it doesn't develop addiction in everybody, it, it's not a completely safe uh, substance and, in fact, can be very harmful to, uh, you know, a large number of people. Thanks, Jonathan. I appreciate that. Um, so I want to thank our listeners today for uh, for uh, tuning in um, on this topic. And, again, the name of uh, Dr. Hill's book is Marijuana, the Unbiased Truth About the World's Most Popular Weed. Our author is Kevin Hill, MD, and the book can be found wherever books are sold, Amazon, other online stores, um, and it's uh, put together by the Hazelden Publishing Group uh, out in Minnesota. Um, it's also available as an e-book, so if you have an e-reader, um, you can certainly uh, find it for that device as well. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.